Welcome to Impact the World, the show for and about creatives, changemakers, and entrepreneurs. This is a conversation episode where a special guest shares with me what they are creating and the behind the scenes journey of their experience. Hello, welcome to Impact the World, and I'm delighted to have back on the show Anita Morjani. Many of you, I'm sure, will be familiar with Anita if you didn't catch her on the show the last time around. Her book, Dying to Be Me, which came out in 2011, documents her near-death experience that she had when she was diagnosed with cancer that she wasn't supposed to recover from. So that book documented her four-year journey with cancer what happened during her near-death experience and how it woke her up to life and how love is the most important thing. So today we get to talk a little bit more about the world of sensitives. Anita's latest book, Sensitive is the New Strong, has been very acclaimed, very widely read, and so I wanted to invite Anita back so that we could take a bit more of a dive into that body of work for her, what characterizes, sensitivity and why it is a superpower for our times. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with my friend Anita Morjani. And if you do enjoy our show and you want to support us, you can do so by leaving us a rating or a review over at Apple Podcasts. And as ever, you'll find links to Anita's website and all other details in the show notes below. Enjoy. Anita, thank you so much for being here with us. I'm super excited to get to be in person with you after a very long time of not seeing you in the physical and also that you've brought Sensitive as the New Strong, your new book here, so that we can talk about that today. Yes, it's, it's actually super exciting to be here because yeah, it's been a while with COVID and everything. Yeah, and for anyone who watches the show or listens to the show regularly, Anita and I did an interview that was episode 32. And uh, in that, we really focused on Dying to Be Me, your first book. And we also had your husband, Danny, on the show, which was a real treat. So for anyone who wants to check that show out, check out 32. But maybe you could give us a little bit of context for those who don't know you about Dying to Be Me, which really was the book that brought you into the self-help world. Yes. So what happened is um, I didn't set out to be an author. I never knew this is what I was going to be doing. I was living in Hong Kong at the time and I was diagnosed with lymphoma, which is a form of lymphatic cancer, back in 2002. And it continued to pro progress. And in 2006, I was at a point of what the doctors term as end stage cancer. So in other words, I had been in stage four but now it was in the final stages of stage four and I was in the process of dying. It was terminal and uh, on February the 2nd, 2006, I went into a coma and the doctors said that I wasn't going to come out of the coma. And at that point, my body had uh, stopped absorbing nutrition. So I weighed about 85 pounds. My lungs were filled with fluid so prior to falling into the coma, um, I had struggled with, like I couldn't even lie down. I couldn't even lie flat because I would choke on my own fluid. 
and I had tumors throughout my entire lymphatic system the size of golf balls from the base of my skull all around my neck, under my arms, in my chest, and all the way down to my abdomen. And so by this point, I was so um, tired and worn out, and I was filled with fear. I was afraid of the disease. I was afraid of death. I knew I was dying. I was afraid of the treatments, and I was in so much pain and uh, so much discomfort. And then on, so on February the 2nd, I went into a coma and my organs were now shutting down. That's what the doctors told my family, that my organs had shut down um, and that I would, would not be coming out of the coma. They said I wouldn't even make it through the night. But unbeknownst to my family and the doctors and everyone around me, I was, even though my physical body was in the coma, I felt like I had left my body and I felt amazing and incredible and I felt light and free and all the pain was gone and the fear was gone. It was just incredible. And I felt enveloped by like a ocean of just love, unconditional love. Even those words don't do it justice. And I felt like I was surrounded by beings some of whom I knew from this lifetime, but many of whom I didn't recognize from this life, but they were there to help me through this process. And my dad, who had died 10 years prior, he was there as well. But the main thing I felt was that I was loved um, unconditionally in that I didn't have to do anything to prove myself. I was loved just because I existed. And I had never felt like that in my physical life before because I'd always been someone that was always seeking people's approval and I always felt I needed to prove myself. And this was the first time I felt, wow, I never needed to do that. I'm loved just because I exist. And I started to realize that we are much more powerful than we have ever been led to believe. Um, I felt powerful, magnificent, like I felt like my spirit was huge, my soul or whatever we want to call it. And I understood why I had cancer, why I had got sick. And it was because I'd never realized who I truly was. Um, and of course, I wrote about all the details and I've spoken about them in many videos. But basically, I reached a point where I was given a choice as to whether to continue on in that realm or to turn back and come here back into my body. And no part of me wanted to come back into the, my body because I had been suffering, my family was suffering. I wanted to stay there where it was so beautiful. But my dad said to me that now that you know the truth of who you really are, if you go back, your body will heal very quickly. And he wanted me to know it wasn't my time and I had gifts waiting for me here. And also, I realized that my husband Danny and my purpose was linked. And if I didn't come back, he wouldn't be able to complete his purpose either. So I made the decision to come back. And my dad said to me that just go back and live your life fearlessly. And that's when I came out of the coma. And within weeks, all the tumors just shrunk and disappeared. 
and that was in 2004, March 2004, I was released from the hospital to go home and live my life cancer-free, and here I am. And the doctors were unable to explain what happened. They said that I was lucky to be alive, it was a spontaneous remission, but they couldn't explain how or why it happened. But I know how and why it happened. Yeah, and you know, I've spoken to a lot of people over the years who've had near-death experiences, friends and friends of friends, and whenever your name comes up, and I think of that book, Dying to Be Me, which is one of my all-time favorite spiritual books. Um, I read it before I even knew you, back, back when it first came out. I think that in a way, your book and your story, you've served as, as a bit of an ambassador for the world around several different themes. Obviously, th there is more to life, but w what I love really that seems to be the takeaway for you, and you, you share this in the book, is love yourself, love your life, love is the energy to, to live through. And I, I look at your journey this past 15, 16 years, and it's, it's a very different life. And you do work with Danny, who's such a wonderful part of the work that you do. And the two of you work as a team to bring your writings, your message, your videos, and your inspiration out into the world. So it's a really incredible team that you guys are and, and have. Yeah, thank you. Yes, I, I wouldn't be able to do a lot of this work if it wasn't for him. Um, he's just been an incredible partner, but not only that, even when I was dealing with the illness itself, those four years that I was going through the journey of the cancer, he was right by my side and just trying to make me as comfortable as possible. And even when I thought I was going to die, when I said to him, I'm going to die, he would actually say, I'm not going to let you. <laughs> and I would say, how are you going to stop me? And he'd say, just try me. I'm going to come and get you back. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So I know that dying to be me has been has, has affected millions of people around the world. And you brought that book out in 2011, and then you, yes. were, you were very much a speaker and uh, someone going and facilitating workshops in the self-help world. And I remember uh, having dinner with you, and it was about two years ago, and you told me, oh, I asked you what you were working on, and you said, I have this book coming out. And I said, what's the title? And you said, Sensitive is the New Strong. And I got all the shivers. Um, and, and, and it just felt to me that not only is this book needed, but also it felt like you were beginning a new arc in your journey as, as a teacher and as a voice in the world and as an inspiration. So I know the book has just been released and, and, and I know it's been phenomenally received by people. Um, I'll just ask you first, how do you feel now that you have this baby out in the world? and? This is now part of your, your work and your life. I feel really good. I, um, I actually felt as I was writing this book that this is a very important book. And I have had things happen to show me that it is an important book. A couple of things is that, as you know, Wayne Dyer was the one that brought me out into the world. And um, what happened is that on March 16th, 2011, so he, I'm living in Hong Kong at that time, and I get this email from Hay House, who I knew of Hay House, that they were publishers, but I didn't know them personally. 
I'd never communicated with them in my life before. I'd never been an author before, nothing. I was just someone who listened to or, or bought their books. But, so I get an email from the chief editor at Hay House who says, Wayne Dyer has discovered your story. Because my story was on the internet, <clears throat> the story of my near-death experience and the healing from cancer. And um, she went on to say, Wayne Dyer has discovered your story and has asked us to track you down to ask you if you would be interested in writing a book about your story, which we would then publish. And Wayne would like to help you, to, um, Wayne would li like to write the foreword and help you publicize. I read that and I started crying. So the thing is, that email came on my birthday in 2011, March 16th, 2011. So I wrote back right away and said, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Did you know it's my birthday? And of course, yes, I would love to have a book published. And she wrote back um, because there was a deep part of me that knew that I was meant to share the story. I knew that was the purpose or the gift that my dad had said I had waiting for me on the other side. But I didn't know how to do that. How was it going to happen? And so I get this email. And so then she wrote back and she said, oh, happy birthday. Um, and I said, what do I have to do next? And she said, it's really easy. I'll send you a book contract and you just have to sign it. That's it. And then we start the process from there. So then um, I started putting it into a book form with the help of an editor who they assigned me. And the book was launched on the 1st of March, 2012, a year later. But on March 16th, 2012, that's two weeks after it was launched, it hit the New York Times bestseller list. So again, on my birthday. So what was super interesting is I have another book in between, which is called What If This Is Heaven? And then I've written a children's book as well. But then when I was writing this book, I felt different. So the first book felt really powerful inside. The story just came tumbling out because it was all in there wanting to be shared. This one, I went through a process, but it was more like, this is something that I need to share. It needs to be heard because I had something to say. I felt more like, um, like an activist or it felt more like a movement that I was starting. That was what it felt like. And then it was supposed to be launched in October of 2020. But because of COVID backlogs and everything, the publishers contacted me and said, do you mind if we launch it in early 2021 instead? I said, I don't mind at all. And then they came back to me with the launch date, March 16th. Again, <laughs> I was like, oh, that's definitely Wayne helping me. So for me, that was a sign that it was Wayne Dyer telling me, I'm still helping you. That's beautiful. And those synchronicities never lie. It's great. Um, yeah. So I'm curious because obviously the people who tune into this show are, are many sensitives, empaths, uh, those who are interested in consciousness and energy. But how would you describe if someone is curious, well, I don't know, am I a sensitive? What is a sensitive? Like, how do you introduce that conversation for someone who's wondering if they are a sensitive person or they have a certain sensitivity? Because it's a whole new world, I think, that we're unpacking now as a culture. So I, yes. I'm curious what your definition of a sensitive might be. 
So I ask people questions um, and see if they relate to it. For example, um, if somebody is going through pain and hurt, do you immediately feel for them? Do you immediately have this feeling that I want to reach out and help them? Is that instinctual for you? Like without even thinking about it, or even your verbal response is very compassionate towards them and it just comes to you really naturally. Or if you see someone that's in physical pain, do you immediately feel yourself, your, your physical body kind of feeling like, ooh, that must really hurt. You, f you can feel what it feels like. Um, and also, do you know things before people tell you things? Do you intuit things? Do you hear things? Do, do people tell you you're really weird? Do you have trouble fitting in? And in fact, um, I've even got a quiz on my website and I've put a quiz in the front of this book just to help people determine if they are sensitive or not. And I often say that sensitivity, it's like on a, it's, it's on a spectrum. Most people have some level of, of sensitivity. But the people who I am really um, targeting my work towards are the ones at the high end of the sensitivity scale, going from highly sensitive to and also empath. So you have empath. So the difference between someone who is highly sensitive and someone who's an empath is that an empath is someone who actually absorbs the energy around them and then can't even tell that this is not their energy. Someone who's highly sensitive is extremely sensitive to the energies around them. They know what's happening around them. They're also highly intuitive as are empaths. So I'm talking about people who are highly intuitive, but a highly sensitive person can still differentiate between what's yours and what's mine. An empath can't. They literally can be in the company of somebody who's miserable and they can walk away feeling miserable and not even realize that, oh, this isn't mine. I just, just absorbed everything that that person was feeling. So empaths are like sponges. And so I have now taken to speaking to people like empaths because I realize now over the years, you know, um, one of the things I mentioned is that I understood why I got sick. I understood it was because I tended to feel everybody else's emotions, but not only feel it, but take it on as my own. I realized, I didn't know at that time that there was such a thing as an empath. I didn't even know the word at that time. But during my near-death experience, I understood how it came to be that I got sick. Over the years, I've come to realize, oh, there's a term for it. There are people who actually, you know, it's, it's, it's a thing, an mm -hmm. empath. And, I, and so I realized, that if I got sick, because now I know there's a word, it's because I was an empath and I couldn't separate my emotions and my pain and my everything from other people's or other people's from mine, I just took it on. Other people must be doing it too. When I started to think that way, um, so when I, after I published my first book, I still hadn't heard of the word empath at that point. And I shared the story of how I had got sick and I shared the story in the book about how I knew that it was um, all the thoughts and decisions and choices I had made in my life 
and the emotions and, and everything that contributed to my illness. After I realized that, oh my gosh, it's because I'm an empath. Not everybody thinks this way. Not everybody absorbs everyone's emotions. I started asking in my workshops, and I started asking the audience, how many of you relate to being an empath? And I would describe to them what it means, much like how I just described to you. Just about everybody in the workshop would raise their hand or in the audience would raise their hand. That's when I realized that empaths, whether they realize they're empaths or not, are the people who are attracted to my work. And I realized that when I have people pushing back against me, when there are people who are saying, oh, you have no evidence of what you're, what you're saying, and are you saying that by loving yourself you can heal cancer? You know, people who really mm. push back or try to debunk what I'm saying. I realized that they don't relate to it because they're not empaths. And so that's when I realized, ah, so empaths literally... As they uh, read my book, they're feeling like, oh my gosh, yes, I feel these things. Yes, I get sick too when, when these things happen. And they're actually relating to everything I'm saying, and that's why they're attracted to my work. That's when I started to realize that empaths need a different kind of teaching, you know, a different thing. I mean, I could go on and on because one of the things I started to realize is that if I look for like in the work I do right now I'm out there in public speaking and you know we have to deal with pushback and social media and and things like even um we have to deal with divisiveness and empaths and highly sensitive people are super sensitive to this where we are people who um truly believe in compassion and empathy and so we feel it when people are out there being divisive. Um, and so I started to think to myself, if I'm going to continue in this line of work as a speaker, um, as somebody who's prominent on social media, if I want to start this kind of a movement that we have to embrace being sensitive, it can't be seen as a weakness. I want to find a mentor, somebody who's done it before me, who is a public figure who's out there in the public, who has a leadership role, who is out there showing that compassionate is what, this, what is needed in the world. As I looked for a mentor, I couldn't find one. <laughs> and so that's when I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? Empaths shy away from leadership roles. And I started to think, put two and two together, and I felt, no wonder the world is so messed up. Because if we had more empaths, and sensitive people and compassionate people in leadership roles, they would make the changes that we want to see in the world. So that was the drive and the impetus behind this book. Wow. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot that you said there that, that, that was great that I would love to pick up on a few things, but just something that pinged in my brain as you were saying that, um, or maybe my intuitive awareness rather than my brain, you know, as you said, that empaths shy away from traditional leadership roles. Yes. Isn't it interesting that, and I'm not in any way belittling fathers here, because there are amazing fathers out there in the world who are just as maternal and caring as the mothers. 
And equally, we also know there are some mothers who maybe weren't really cut out to be mothers, maybe, or it wasn't really their path, but they found themselves in it. I think of the mothering energy in the world, whether you have actual children or whether you are one of those caring, nurturing, compassionate, loving people to your friends or to your family members, how undervalued that role has been historically and how subjugated women have been and, and the feminine. And so it's interesting because to me, that leadership is the kind of leadership that all of us have been created through. And yet it's a kind of unacknowledged leadership when we talk about, you know, who's at the head of the governments and who's at the head of various positions of power in our society. So that just kind of pinged for me when, when you yes. were saying that. I love that. But also the power of validation. You know, that's what I really took when you were talking about this. Because I also don't remember ever really hearing the word empath 20 odd years ago or more than 20 years ago when I was a student of healing and metaphysics and self-growth. I don't remember that word very much. I'm really glad that in the last decade or so we've started to acknowledge it because most sensitives, empaths that I know, we tended to be weighted down by the wound of I'm too much. They don't like it when I, you know, yes. when I say something too emotional. I, like many others, would would notice that yes, there would be people in my life who would come to me for a certain emotional space holding. But equally I had to learn that balance of, oh no, you shouldn't speak quite so directly emotionally to this person because it's a trigger for them. And I had to learn that the hard way. So I love that you're creating this container for people to be validated about who they are. And then I think when you're validated and you feel seen, you can start to really use your gifts in the world and be your gifts rather than feeling wounded or wrong about who you're just naturally trying to be in a world that perhaps hasn't yet created space for you. I love the way you said that, yes. And also to what you said about the nurturing feminine mother, mothering role that's never been seen or it's never been recognized for the importance that it is. On the other side, on the flip side, when men are compassionate and empathic and sensitive and highly sensitive, they're actually made to be seen as weak. They're shamed for it. It's worse for men who are, who are sensitive than it is for women, which is also really, really sad because what the world needs today is more sensitive men. And what saddens me also is that when you have women taking up leadership roles, they seem to become more like men uh, yeah. to, to take on such roles. So that is what's really sad in our world. And that's why um, th the reason for the title is because I feel that we need, to, uh, we need to redefine what it means to be strong. We need to redefine the word strength because currently people who are ruthless, people who are highly competitive, who win at all costs, they are defined as strong. We need to stop seeing those as strengths. We worship people who make it to the top through competition, ruthlessness. And we need to actually start seeing empathy, compassion, sensitivity as strengths if we want to see us evolve. Because even, even before COVID, the way the world 
the direction it was going. Um, we were spending, our, our countries, our nations, our governments, every country was spending more money on, um, on killing other nations than they were on feeding people and helping them. I think if you had a more empathic leadership, they would be more focused on feeding people. We would heal world hunger overnight if you had empath leaders. And the, the other piece I wanted to speak to also is about intuition because empaths and highly sensitive people are extremely intuitive, but many of them suppress their intuition because they want to fit in. They want to be validated and, and accepted by the world around them. So I often say that highly sensitive people and empaths are six sensory beings trying to live in a five sensory world. And you know, most of them are in tune. And you, of course, are a prime example of this. You're highly intuitive. You communicate with the other side. Um, I feel guided with the other side all the time. I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for the guidance I receive all the time. Um, and yet, prior to the near-death experience, I believe I was guided all the time. But because I didn't listen to it, I gave my power away to authorities, that's why I, um, I wasn't following my calling, I never loved myself, I suppressed myself to, to try not to disappoint people. That's why I ended up getting sick. Oh, God, so again, so many things I could say. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, a couple of things there, because one, one thing that strikes me, you, so you just reflected who I am in the world, and I, I go back mm, 10 years, I mean, even five years to some degree, but especially if I go back 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, I was channeling, I was connected to the other side from the age of, very directly from the age of 22. But I had all of these other parts of myself, the people pleaser, the one who liked harmony, the one who didn't like saying no, the one who didn't like feeling distress in the room, the one who didn't want to say the thing that might upset, you know, all of those parts of me had to piece by piece in turn over the years heal. And of course it goes on, you know, the, the, the more we're alive, the more new layers appear. It takes time for that synthesis to happen where you can get to a point where you're able to be who you came here to be in a less encumbered way than you used to be. Mm -hmm. So. I, you know, I just also want to acknowledge that to anyone listening or, or you know, having some light bulb moments, but thinking, oh my God, I've got this, this, and this. We all have it, or we've all had it, and it just, you know, you take care of one piece at a time. But I, I think what you're addressing, and this goes back a couple of points, really, if we can allow this to come into the world through everyday leadership, because not everybody's going to go into politics yeah. or be the head of an organization. But the more we individually hold space for our own sensitivity and make it okay out there in the world, the more that ripple effect moves through the world. And I mean, I, for me, the men who I know who are vulnerable and in their hearts and capable of sensitivity, they're like superheroes to me. I'm like, oh, wow. And it's not that there's anything wrong with some of the other men I know who maybe aren't 
yet able or comfortable to be there. I think that's just the way we as men have been conditioned on the planet. Yes. And then the same with women, like, you know, here's your box, here's who you're allowed to be, and now we're going beyond gender norms. And I think part of the reason we're going beyond gender norms on the planet is to bring balance, it's to bring more multidimensionality to this kind of crazy soup that we're all in. But, yes. But what you're addressing and what you're holding space for is a kind of emerging superpower on the planet, really, acknowledging your sensitivity and bringing it to your life. Yes, thank you. And, and um, exactly, it's not just about acknowledging it so that you can go and start a movement or, or take on a leadership role or, or become a politician. It's not for that, but it is first acknowledging it within yourself and understanding it. Because um, <clears throat> when I realized that I was an empath, when I started reading up on it, I was like, oh my gosh, this, I, felt, I felt liberated. And on the one hand, people have said to me, um, but you know, you, you shouldn't label yourself. But I say, no, to me, the term label means you're boxing something in and you're limiting it, but when I, discovered I was an empath, it set me free, it liberated me because it gave me a description as to who I am or a part of certain traits that I have. And it helped me understand myself better so that I could work with those traits. And so what I started to understand is that because an empath, and this is me understanding the dynamics of what happened and why I ended up being such a people pleaser and taking on all these things, I understood that because as an empath, we feel the energies around us and we take on these energies and we realize instinctively, not consciously though, we don't know we're doing this, but if somebody around us isn't feeling good, we don't feel good. So our immediate instinct is to want them to feel good mm. so that we can feel good. Now, if I'm the one that's causing that person to not feel good, I immediately feel, oh no, I don't feel good if they don't feel good, so I need to, to, to behave myself, as, or I need to behave a certain way so that they feel good. This is how we give our power away to other people as empaths. Empaths are prone to becoming people pleasers and doormats because they want the people around them to be happy because they feel happy when the people around them are happy because they then feed off that energy. So what I try and do in my work now in my book is I point this out to you. And so if you can figure out other ways to actually um, bring up your happy and bring up your energy, what happens is when you can expand your energy and make your energy strong and powerful, and I talk about the importance of self-love because the less you love yourself, the smaller your energy field, but the more you love yourself, the bigger your energy field. I speak about how it's not egotistical to love yourself. For an empath, it's important. I didn't love myself and I got sick. So it is important to love yourself. It's selfless to love yourself because what happens is the bigger your energy field, the less likely you are to take on everyone's energy because yours is strong and powerful. And at the same time, when yours is strong and powerful and joyful and filled with love, 
when other people are around you, their energy field gets uplifted. You're able to uplift other people without saying anything. So the focus has to be on you loving yourself and being the light and uplifting your energy, not on trying to please other people to uplift them. So an empath has to think, they have to uh, think in a way that runs counter to the way they're currently thinking. So it's not about, oh, I got to make them happy so that I'll be happy. No, I got to make me happy and uplift myself. And then my energy will be the light that will uplift them. We have to do it the other way. It's so interesting because I think a lot of what you say parallels with um, those who are healers. So whether you are someone who's like the healer for your family group or your friend group, or whether you actually are a healer, you know, perhaps you're a body worker or a Reiki therapist or any kind of healer. And I always remember for me, one of the things that I had to learn the hard way, like many of us, is I had to sometimes be in someone's presence and feel their discomfort and ignore it. But I had to work hard at first, like at first, because I was compelled to kind of, oh, you know, I could, I could help them. harmonize this or I could, and actually it, it took me many, many years to get to the point where I think I owned my own inner body uh, versus kind of exactly what you said, kind of being out there in the energy of everyone else because you haven't yet owned your own inner body. And that, you know, that takes figuring out what makes you happy. And I think the mental or egoic objection to that is usually, oh, well, that's selfish. Well, no, it isn't actually, because if you're a depleted force in the world, that's also the energy you're giving people. You're giving people thin, depleted energy. Exactly. But if you can sustain yourself, um, you're filling up your cup. So Anita Morjani, what fills you up? Like when you're not working or sitting here doing an on-camera conversation like this, what are the small acts that you like to do to fill yourself up or that you appreciate in, in life? Um, so, so many things. I do actually love chatting with people like you. And I know that right now we are, of course, doing something official on video, um, but, but actually hanging and chatting and playing and eating with people, like-minded people like yourself, that is one of the most fun things for me to do. Um, and also being out in nature, like being by the ocean, being by the beach, um, I love just walking. I love walking outside. I love sunshine. Um, I love plants and things like that. I love music. I just love music makes me very happy. I love cooking. Um, and you're an amazing cook. <laughs> thank you. I enjoy cooking. <laughs> For me, cooking is like a whole, a huge ceremony. Even when I make tea, it's a huge ceremony. It's not just a tea bag in a, in a mug with water. It's a whole thing where I have to steep the tea in, in a teapot and then pour it. And, and I usually put some kind of a um, creamer or milk or something, and I like to froth it. And so it's a whole palava, as we say <laughs> yeah. in English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, uh, so I like doing things like that. And one of the gifts that the last year, 2020, brought me is, um, of course, it was a shock, everything that was happening and all my trips were canceled. But one of, the, one of the gifts it brought me was that I was able to slow down. And that's when I, I realized that, wow, I was actually more depleted than I thought. 
And I started doing all those things again. I started cooking and walking and making tea and listening to music. And I realized how much I had missed all that when my life was a bit crazy and I was traveling. But all of those things fill my cup and charge my batteries. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. So I'll ask you a little bit about writing, if I may, because sure. writing is something I know that many people are passionate about. You know, a lot of people say, I feel like I have a book in me or uh, they want to, whether it's write a, an online article or something. But one of the things I hear over and over again is, is people asking, well, what's a good writing practice? And sh how, long, how long should you write per day? And I think sometimes the process of writing is a bit mysterious to a lot of people. So I'm curious if you don't mind sharing with us, what's your writing process or is it different with each book? Um, so it has been a little different with each of the three books I did, but the one thing in common is that when I start writing, I have to write without thinking. And then, and the thing is that um, I'm the kind of person that needs to work with an editor because I'm not good at then organizing my thoughts in an, in a, in an order that will actually work. So uh, in an order that will work for the reader. So I do write my own books. I do not get a ghostwriter, so I do write them, but I write them in, in segments, in sections. And so I just write and write and write whatever is in my head and it just comes out like it might be. But they are, every thought process that I write down is complete in and of itself. Um, so it could be something that happened to me. Like for example, um, each book, all three of my books have lots of anecdotes taken from different parts of my life or in the in this book there's a lot of anecdotes from events I've done and stories people have shared with me and so I will suddenly go oh wow that that incident that happened or that story that person told me or this thing that happened to me that would go great in this book it'll it'll fall into that theme and so I'll write that out it'll be an entire incident from beginning to end that happened to me. I might speak about the time that I was bullied at one of my jobs many years ago. And so I will write. And then once it's done, it's out. I won't revisit that piece again. And then um, it's with the help of my editor that we then string everything together to make it into a book with chapters. And we, we will talk with each other about uh, how, what should go towards the beginning and how it can progress. And so that'll be a conversation, but I will keep writing. So it's like a jigsaw puzzle. So it's lots of complete little pieces that then have to go together. Beautiful. And it's funny you mentioned ghostwriters because it was a shock to me when I first started working in this field that, you know, quite a few people will have ghostwriters, yeah. but I also, I also think it's important sometimes to demystify the book process because I think if you don't know about writing a book, you tend to think that you're just sat there like this and oh, all just, yeah. and actually, you know, sometimes it can take a village to help you bring a book together. It does. Yeah. How long did this one take, Sensitive as the New Strong? It took three years, I would wow. say, actually. But although I say it took three years, probably two years of writing and then um, when, even after all the content is written, then you're still going back and forth with the editor and then there's the publishing process. And you know, when I started writing the book, 
I called it Confessions of a Recovering Doormat. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> that was that's the original really title. Good. Oh, that's good. That's a whole other, I mean, that's a whole other thing, but it's, that, that's lovely. See, and because I share in it a lot of stories of how I was treated as a doormat and how easy it is to fall into that if you are an empath and if you're someone who's super sensitive, to fall into being a doormat because you want other people to be happy. And, uh, and so, but what happened is uh, my, my literary agent, it was either her or her together with the publishers, where they said, we want something that's more uplifting, something that's more inspiring, because confessions of a recovering doormat yes. <laughs> suggests you're still a recovering I mean, it'd be a great doormat. comedy book, actually. That, <laughs> that actually feels like a, a comedy book that it I does. would read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there are some stories. So this was like in, right in the beginning of my um, writing process. That's what I called it then. Mm. And so there are some of the original anecdotes that I wrote for when it was that title are still there because the, I, I continued writing from then when she told me to change the title and I came up with a few. I really liked Sensitive is the New Strong. It resonated with me when I came up with that. And she was saying, oh, we can still bat it around a bit. But then I thought, no, this is it. This is the title I want. And so then um, what my editor pushed me to do was she started to push me more towards making it solution-oriented because this title suggests that there are tools and solutions, whereas Confessions of a Recovering Doormat doesn't. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I remember when you said it to me, it had that feeling. And, and even I remember sharing the day the book came out or the day after I shared a post on Instagram and so many people in the comments I saw, if they didn't already know you, everyone was like, oh my God, I need that book because of the title, you know, it, it, it conveys. And, and, and so I do think that your book and other things that are out there in the world right now that are helping to validate and strengthen our sensitivity, it, it's gonna be a really important force for good. And I'm curious for you, I'm guessing, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that in a way you having this very public life that you've had for the last decade, which you weren't planning and yes. wasn't who you were before, in a way, I'm guessing some of the lessons that you've had through being put in that very public position have contributed to your learning about yourself as a sensitive. Because like you said earlier, it's, it's a tricky position to be in sometimes. It's, you know, yes. it, it, there's a lot coming at you. There can be a lot of projection, psychic energy. And, and, and I'm, I'm guessing that in a way, this is, this is what became of the, the woman who wrote Dying to Be Me went on to discover this next phase of her journey. That's how I see it. Very well put, 100%. This, it was, this is exactly the, what went on to, this is the next part of my own personal journey. And um, also, just to even add a piece to that, um, when I was dealing with being in the public eye, I touched on it a little bit earlier, but I realized that as a sensitive person, and you probably relate to this, is that we are extremely sensitive to criticism. And that's one of the reasons why sensitive people shy away from the public eye. Um, there have been many times where I felt, oh gosh, I wish I could take a break from this, from being in the public eye or take a break from the world. But you can't, because even when you take a break, because I do take a break 
from looking at social media or following things, I can take a break, but it still goes on. Same, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so that also informed my thinking a lot that I started to realize that, um, you know, if there is, because I started to look at people who get a lot of criticism but still go on. And, and so that's when I started to realize that sensitivity is like on a, on a spectrum. And so if you are at the higher end of the spectrum, you are more likely to be very, very afraid of criticism or very sensitive to criticism. And the people at the lower end of the spectrum are not as sensitive to criticism. But here's the thing, the people at the lower end who are not, um, who, who are not as sensitive to criticism are also at the lower, because they're at the lower end of the sensitivity scale, they're also less empathic to the needs of other people, which means that the ones that are more empathic are more sensitive. And so here, you know, so here's that whole thing of that the more empathic you are, the more you shy away from the world. The less empathic you are, the more likely you are to be out there convincing everyone that what you're saying is right and true. And that's one of the things I started to notice is that when we have people who are the loudest voices among us, it's not that they are correct, it's that they are the most convincing. You know, because some of the things that still irk me, for example, about the world we live in, um, you know, we all know that we should not kill people. We absolutely should not. It's morally wrong. Nobody has the right to kill people. Um, it's also legally wrong. It's against the law. If, if you or I killed someone, we would go to jail. Why do governments have the right to create armies and train young people to carry rifles and go into countries and kill people? What gave them the right to override this universal law. And so things like that, I'm like, how do we give them, why are we giving them the power? Why are we worshiping these people? Why are we saying that they are our leaders? Why can't we put, why can't we call somebody a leader, somebody who is going to actually put down their rifles and raise their consciousness instead. Why don't we look to that as being our role models? And why don't we look to that as being a form of strength? It's only because one set of voices are more convincing than the other. And we all follow the louder voices. It's so true. And you know, if you think about, for example, being in a room full of 10 people, yeah. and if one of them has an anger outburst and is loud and throws their energy into the room, they tend to draw all our focus. In, yeah. And they're what we'll remember, that imprint. So it's interesting hearing you say that because I think most people I know anyway would agree that in the last four or five years, the insanity of our world is getting more increasingly, I should say the insanity of the system of our world is increasingly in people's awareness. The question is, what do we do now? And where do we go from here? And how do we start to bring more humanity into our systems? Because I know a lot of people who would say, oh, well, we can't do anything because the system is rigged and we can't do anything. And, and then 
what my guys are always saying is you're here creating it. And every tiny action that any of you take and any small conversation that you have that you perceive as small or tiny is not small or tiny because it ripples out. And, you know, going right back to the beginning of this conversation, my grandmother was such a leader figure in my life and she was so quiet. Like she, she hardly said a word and she didn't have a big public life, but her, her leadership energy instilled something in me that I still carry to this day. So I yes. hope with everything you just said, I think we all hope and wish that in our lifetime, we get to see some of that insanity and inhumanity change. Um, and in the meantime, we're here with our sleeves rolled up, getting on with the day-to-day the -day job of it all. Yes, and you're so right that we are at some level enabling or co-creating it as well. And, and it doesn't have to be people like us stepping out or empaths stepping out into, into the world, but doing it in their quiet way, as your grandmother did, just doing it in their quiet way. Yeah, and you know, something you said a moment ago, I think is, is why your book and your work and this topic in general, whether it's through your work or anyone else's work is so important right now. It's way too easy for us to crumble in our sensitivity when we look at some of the stuff going on in the world. And it's so normal. It's a path that many of us know, like the dark nights of the soul you go through where you're like, what the hell is this stuff that we're seeing out there? And so I think the more you can uncover who you are and what you need in the world to thrive and to be here and be present, the more you're going to be able to create the change you wish to see. But I also just want to say that I think sometimes there are people I've met over the years, and I, I probably had this a bit myself, being very hard on yourself because you're feeling down or depressed about the world. And yeah, I wish I was making a difference too. And, and I always say, don't worry about making a difference, just get yourself back first. So if you're, if you're in a really tough spot, work on ev doing everything you can to bring yourself back to a kind of neutral place. And then from there, you'll be able to show up in the world in a different way. But yes. crumbled sensitivity and impacted sensitivity is where we lose our power and our ability to be in light, bring light, experience light. Yes, brilliant. That's very well said because really, it really is about bringing yourself out of that, out of that funk or whatever we want to call it, which sensitive people and empaths tend to feel that. You tend to feel the energies of the world. You tend to feel what's happening around you. You're most affected by the news if you watch the news. And so I always tell empaths and sensitive people, um, before you feel that you want to go out and help the world, please get yourselves to that state of what I call expanded energy, because you take yourself wherever you go. And if you're going to go out there in a depleted energy, that's what you're going to bring to the world. So it really is about, it, it, it's, it is about doing the things doing whatever it takes to heal you first. And it is not selfish. If healing you is going out and having fun, if it is hanging with friends, if it is doing something that's just super fun for you, then so be it, it's not selfish. Because empaths and highly sensitive people innately are rescuers. If you are a rescuer, if you are somebody that just can't stand to see someone suffer and you just jump in whether they ask you or not 
and it takes all your strength not to do that, then you are an empath or a highly sensitive person. You are someone that needs to focus on looking after yourself first because that is something that's not innate within you. What is innate within you is to jump in and help other people. And if you're building yourself, your ability to rescue will quadruple. Yes. Like that, that's, the, that's the kind of way to play the, play the game with your mind as your mind wants to object about you looking after yourself. Yes, exactly. Anita, thank you so much for being here and having this conversation with us. I love you dearly. Thank you for writing one of my favorite books and then this new beauty of a book, which I know is going to bring a lot to many people. And if anybody wants to, we will, we will put the links to Anita's book in the show notes and also your website, which is anitamorjani.com. And you, you do many different things, but I also know you have an incredible members community, which is the Anita Morjani Sanctuary. Yes, that's right. And that's anitamorjanisanctuary.com. Absolutely. I have my membership platform where we support other people um, who are empaths. And basically, it's a place where we uplift people, where I offer tools for empaths. And it's, um, it's a safe place where we can communicate with each other, connect, and I offer tools to help them to uplift themselves. Beautiful. Well, thank you for all you're doing in the world, and thank you for coming here and being with us for today's show. Thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for tuning in, everyone. So as ever, we will put links to all of Anita's work in the show notes. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time on Impact the World. Hi, I'm Lee. I'm an intuitive, a channeler, a musician, and you may know me from my monthly free energy updates that go out on YouTube and Facebook. You may know me from the Impact the World podcast, but I wanted to introduce you to my members community, The Portal. We've been a community now for eight years, and my mission and the mission of my team every single month is to bring you wellness content, metaphysical content, anything that's going to support your life as a sensitive, as a healer, as someone who is newly awakening, but also to ground it in reality. So every month we bring you various tools to help you survive, thrive, and expand your life. I know many of you are out there bringing your own special gift or light to the world. And the portal is a hub that we hold along with our community members to support you on your mission. Every month I do a live energy tune-up broadcast. It's 90 minutes long. It allows me to go deeper on some of the energies that month and how they are affecting our specific portal community. I also take Q&A. I answer questions from my intuitive standpoint and I also answer questions from my guides, the Z's, who I channel. These live tune-ups are always available within 24 hours. So if you can't make it live, you will always have the replay to go back and watch again or to use the timestamps to visit a specific question that you heard that you wanted to replay the answer for. Every month, we will bring you a brand new audio recording. I often keep our community at the top of my mind when I'm creating a new channeled MP3 or a new energy alchemy meditation. And these are always scored and supported by the music of sound healer Davor Bozik. 
I also do several private behind the scenes video diaries. Sometimes these are what we're creating and what's going on here at the studio, but other times it might just be me at home talking about things that I'm noticing, really designed to give you and I an intimate conversation that I wouldn't otherwise put out there into the wider world. Stephen Washington brings you a special body energy update every single month. So Stephen is my husband and he is also an amazing Qigong and wellness teacher. So I asked him several years ago to start creating some body medicine for us. So he takes the themes of that month's energy update and he expands upon them and gives you a sequence of Qigong movements that are very gentle and easy for beginners, but it's a way of alchemizing what we're going through and he does it beautifully. So many of our members love that component. Stephen also has many meditations inside the portal, which you can access anytime, and we are expanding our meditation library as these months go on. You receive a welcome bonus of the Intuitive Power live event. So if you've never seen a live event of ours, we had an incredible film crew document our London Intuitive Power event in 2019, and you'll get all five hours of that content as soon as you sign up. And finally, we curate special monthly Spotify playlists, two different kinds, music to move you, so things that are a little more dancey, and music to soothe you, things that are designed to help your nervous system calm. We love introducing you to new music, and this is curated by our whole team. The Classics Library is another important cornerstone of the portal. It gives us an opportunity to bring you eight different MP3 recordings from my vast library, but we curate them as to the titles that might be perfect for you at this time. So if you want some extra audio, you can go into the Classics Library and pick a topic that suits you. Alongside several discounts to Portal members, our favorite thing is the energy of our community. So we have a private forum only available to members where you can share with each other, discuss, and learn from each other. So the portal really is a world unto itself and it will keep expanding as the years go on. But there are some of our members who love every single aspect of the portal and there are some who are there just for two or three things. So if you want to try it out for a month and see if it's for you, you can do that because membership is available to cancel anytime. And we look forward to welcoming you in the portal if you choose to experience what it is that we are curating and creating for you here. Mm -hmm.